Brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Sunday. Let us pray. Holy God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts and minds will be pleasing and acceptable unto you, our guide and our destination. Amen. There is a bumper sticker saying that has been bouncing around on the internet for the last 10 or 20 years. I don't know who started it, but people seem to be fond of saying with a great sense of sort of pompous arrogance that the facts don't care about your feelings. Has anybody heard this one before? The facts don't care about your feelings. It's almost always employed in order to get somebody to feel like they've been dismissed or that the person who's saying this has the facts and the rest of us just have feelings. And that feelings are somehow unworthy of uh, being considered or brought under uh, scrutiny or examination. The reality is that most of the time we don't have the facts. Most of the time we have our gut, our feelings. And human beings, for revolutionary reasons, typically go with their gut. They go with a thing that feels right or feels correct. Normally, when I read this story from Matthew, and I've preached on it a half a dozen times now, almost every time, I take it as Jesus' kind of imprecation or warning to us to say, wake up! You're dreaming, you don't even realize it. You're sleepwalking through life. And this little day will come to an end. Don't waste the precious time that you've been given. Do that which you can while the sun shines. But as I get older and closer to that waking up myself, I think that there is something deeper going on here. A deeper concern that Jesus has for his disciples and for his followers something that has neither to do with facts nor feelings, but rather the investment that we place in these things. I'll give you a couple of examples. I was a child, and we had a big homestead, and there was mosquitoes everywhere. They were really bad one year. And so my dad asked me to take this spray bottle with some sort of modern chemical in it, Spray all the trees. It took me a weekend. And we'll get rid of the mosquitoes. And he was right. It did. That also got rid of all of the frogs. Really freaked me out. Because I was like 10 years old and I was used to catching frogs. And for the first time I went out on a summer evening and it was as silent as though it was the middle of winter. And I said to my dad, I think we killed all the frogs. And he said... No, no, that's crazy. We killed all the mosquitoes. Frogs eat mosquitoes. So they just went away to the neighbor's house where there's more mosquitoes. I hung on to that. Later in life, I learned that no, in fact, you shouldn't spray diazinon around your property. It does kill the frogs. It was a combination of facts and feelings at work. And I don't do that anymore. Not just because I love frogs, I think they're pretty, pretty neat little critters, but because the year after that, after we had successfully wiped out the frogs, there was about 10 times as many mosquitoes. 
And so we learned not to do that. We learned to put up bat houses, little boxes you can stick on the side of your house. Bats go in there, make more bats. Bats come out, eat the mosquitoes. You don't have to spray anything on anybody. I think both of us were mistaken, but we come around to a new conclusion. Dad always used to tell me also that the solution to pollution is dilution. That's not true either. But I think that there are a lot of people who think that that may be true. No, I think it's less about actually figuring out what the reality on the ground is and perhaps more just maintaining an openness to the reality that we might be wrong. We might be wrong. That's hard. I think the more popular, famous, or celebrated we become, the harder and harder it gets to admit that we're wrong. Sometimes it doesn't work out so well. If I say the name George Wallace, to anybody in this church, probably over the age of 60, you may have an image in your head. You may be thinking of a man with a bullhorn. A man thundering from the pulpit of his congressional seat, shouting those vicious words about segregation. What did he say? Segregation today, tomorrow, and forever? George Wallace was a man who believed that some people were created more equal than others. But what isn't talked about is that later in his life, he became a fierce, fierce anti-racist advocate. George Wallace, despite having lived an entire life in public as an outspoken and avowed racist, died a man reconciled to the knowledge that all are created equal. He's not often remembered for that. Hmm. I think about Robert Byrd, the senator from down south. He was a Republican most of his life. He died some flavor of Democrat. He was a member of the KKK prior to being elected to office. That's bananas, but that's true. Later in his life, he changed his mind. And he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the NAACP. Those are powerful stories. It's hard to change your mind, especially if you're somebody who's on TV. And I think that we should pay attention to that. The Gospel lesson from today talks about Ten young people who are perhaps preparing for something to happen. Some of them are ready and some of them are not. Some of them operate under the assumption that they've got enough oil. And some of them prepare for what? For something they aren't expecting. Jesus closes it and says, Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I wonder, my life, that you know neither the day nor the hour. You know not when your life will end. So you should stay awake. Perhaps, but perhaps more so it's important because we don't know when we're finally going to be confronted with the evidence that causes us to change our minds. Now that could come late in life. It can come early in life. But I know that an openness to that leads us closer to God. Right now, there's a big movement taking place in the church. 
I would say in the evangelical church, in the white evangelical church, there are many, many young people having families of their own who are leaving Christian fundamentalism and they're leaving the evangelical church. There's a lot of different words for it. They're calling it deconstruction or exvangelicalism or all these other things. Um, but I do know that for those people who are leaving the fundamentalist church, they're doing so because they were confronted with evidence or some kind of experience that was at odds with what they were brought up to believe and caused them to have a crisis of faith. I would argue not a crisis of faith in God Almighty, but a crisis of faith in the systems and dogmas that they were brought up to believe were true. Many of us don't have that problem in our lives. But for these folks, it's very hard to remain Christians because everything that they were shown to be true about Christianity was demonstrated to be false by their lived experiences. Uh, the, the, the text from the Hebrew Bible that, that, that Margaret shared with us, the story of wisdom, this is one of the oldest and most ancient verses from Scripture. Wisdom is celebrated as a person. Elsewhere in this text it reads that wisdom was the first amongst God's creation. That she danced before the creator. Wisdom is to be found. To be discovered. But there are requirements. There are things that we must do if we want to find wisdom. If we want to discover her. The author says... Wisdom is discerned by those who love her. Okay, that's not so tough. Wisdom is found by those who seek her. Wisdom is known to those who desire her. It says, and anyone who is vigilant on her account will, be, will soon be free from care. In all of these cases, there is wisdom to be had, but it is incumbent upon ourselves to be vigilant, to watch, to seek, to keep our eyes open, to stay awake, to never assume that we have everything that we need to solve the problem at hand. There is a crisis uh, uh, in, the, in, in the governance of American churches in the governance of American institutions that is being brought about by this belief that we can make things up as we go along. Or that we're clever enough to solve any problem when it rises to our attention. And the Bible says repeatedly that that is not the case. But that you must look to the wisdom of our ancestors, the prophets and teachers who've come before us, we have to practice discernment, which means to go to God in prayer, not simply assume that we have the answers, and to stay vigilant and open. I've changed my mind more times than I can count. It's never easy. And in each and every case, I ran the risk of alienating people who I thought were on my team. The hard part is to change your mind in a public way when you have to make amends. To stay awake means to remain open and willing to, to change your mind or to practice a different way of living. There are a lot of really sort of popular 
things to talk about, talk about assumptions about who's allowed to get married in the United States of America, our relationship with everything uh, from pharmaceuticals to uh, the government. I think that, that right now everything is up for grabs in American life. People are changing their minds all over the place. <laughs> but as your pastor, I am much more concerned with the unsexy activities of daily living that attend each and every one of us. For example, I can tell you if you are a person who struggles with addiction, whether it be addiction to some substance or social media, cable news, an addiction to the feeling of self-righteousness, an addiction to time travel, uh, spending your time in the past or fretting over the future. I can stand and tell you that if you change your mind about your relationship with addiction, your life will be better. That you will experience freedom. I can tell you that perhaps sobriety is better than you think. I can quote a beloved friend of mine who discovered sobriety just a few years ago, later in their life, and said that being sober is like giving yourself a vacation every single day of your life. But for you to buy into that, you might have to change your mind. You might have to try something else, a different way of living. I think it's less so that Jesus wants to fret about what we're doing with life's little day and perhaps more so remain open to the notion that we might be wrong. That we might be wrong. There are ways in which we are wrong that hurt us, but there are ways in which we're wrong that hurt other people. If I rail about them over and over again, it's because I've seen the damage that they do. When I stand up here and say to you, statistically, mathematically, that people who are homeless, people who are sleeping rough, people living on the streets, are less likely to commit crimes than people who aren't, that may be something that is hard for you to understand or believe. It may be something that cuts against the grain of your understanding. When I say things like immigrants who come to America make America stronger and more prosperous, and that immigrants who come to America are less likely to commit violent crimes, or harm their neighborhoods, it may be something that cuts against the grain or goes against your gut. When I say that spraying diazinon may kill the mosquitoes, but it's also going to kill the frogs, it may be something that we don't want to hear, but that is true nonetheless. In all of those cases, I had to change my mind. I had to decide all on my own that I was wrong. But in each and every case, when I made that choice, when I woke up, when I decided to stop operating on autopilot and finally examine the things that I had assumed were true in each and every case, I found that my life exploded with joy and blessing and beauty. When I was preparing to move to work in the Middle East, I had everyone in the world telling me what a horrible place it was. 
I had friends come out of the woodwork to tell me to watch my back. And when I went there, I found out it was remarkably similar to the place that I had grown up, filled with people who simply wanted to live their lives in peace, raise their children in safety. People who loved God and people who claimed to love God hadn't seen the inside of a church in years. There were people who wanted to hurt me, but overwhelmingly there were people who wanted to lift me up, support me, and become part of my life. Yesterday, I finally was able to talk on the phone with some of my beloveds that live in the occupied Palestinian territories. It's not easy to make a phone call from Bethlehem right now. It's not easy to make a phone call from anywhere in Palestine right now, let alone to America how we were finally able to connect. Their gravest concern when we finally spoke on the phone, Shoruk and Bisharan said, Habibi, I'm worried, we're worried about you because we don't think that America News is telling the whole story. And they were very concerned that I was, had the wool pulled over my eyes. Uh, and they said, we really want you to believe us. And I said, don't have to talk about that. I believe you, I trust you. Their fear as Palestinians was that they were being lied about to people outside of Palestine. They had no way to correct that information because no one could hear them. I said, what do you need? I can't communicate to you how normal these people were. Mother and father with three children. Their oldest son is 14. Their eldest, their daughter, she's 26. They have a beautiful condo with a rooftop garden. He runs a successful, well, ran a successful export business, selling products to markets around the world. She was a, a homemaker. Both of them had university, have university degrees. They're, they're, they're the most ordinary people on the, on the planet. And they, they said they didn't have water. I'm sorry. They didn't have money. They didn't have money to buy water. Um. Uh, they uh, took me into their home when I was very young and poor because I was an American. I didn't have much money, but I had the privilege to travel anywhere in the world. So I had a passport with an American flag on it. And I was born in America to American parents. And because of that, as a lazy 20-something-year-old kid, I could travel wherever I wanted to. There was no place in the world that wasn't open to me. And my American passport... But the catch was that I didn't have as much money as I thought I would need. And so when I traveled around the world, I stayed in the homes of people who were very ordinary and who reminded me of my parents. Because they had money and food and an extra bed or couch for me to sleep on. Just the most regular people on earth. How many times did I sit at their table and eat dinner with them? And I never gave a second thought to where the food came from. Because as a young American, there was just food in the fridge. Same way it was when I was a kid growing up. This family 
is uh, by any metric a normal, ordinary, middle-class family, cars and kids and mortgage debt. And uh, he, uh, he gave me a, Bisharan gave me a very stern talking to because he caught me smoking cigarettes. I was in my 20s. He said, you know, you do that, you're going to leave a pile of trash everywhere you go. He said, you should quit. And when you quit, don't ever start again. It was the same sort of advice I would have gotten from an uncle. Anyone else in the world. And here is this very ordinary family defying all of the expectations that have been put on my heart by people who thought that they were trying to teach me wisdom. Telling me that they needed money to buy bottled water. Um, the, the, the fact is that Jesus knows his disciples are being lied to. And Jesus knows that we are being lied to. He wants us to become people of peace and to follow his example. But there are competing voices reaching out to us for our attention. Some of them come from outside ourselves. We turn on the television and we're told, these people are this way and these people are this way. These people are criminals and these people are trustworthy. Or we turn on social media and we see people who are successful. These people own a home. They must have good character. These people are professionals. They must be trustworthy. And then we have voices from within ourselves. And we go with our gut. We, we decide all on our own that a certain group of people is a certain way and ought to be treated that way. And Jesus wants for us so desperately to wake up, to stay awake, to use our faculties of reason and discernment to seek wisdom on our own and to know that wisdom is its own reward. Don't simply receive your wisdom from outside and don't simply assume that the wisdom that you think you have is sufficient for the day. But stay awake, discern. And when you find yourself stumbling into that rut, that pattern of behavior, some thought system, some assumption about the way that the world is, catch it, stop, pause, discern, pray, think for yourself, for God's sakes, and be awake. Because you don't know, you cannot know when those times will find you and seize you. You can't know what tomorrow brings, but you can remain awake. There's a lot of facts being shared right now from all directions. And there is a lot of instinct in each and every one of us. But if we can just stay awake, stay awake and try and discern wisdom for ourselves and not simply go with our biases and assumptions, then the Bible says in no uncertain terms, 
that wisdom will appear and that we will be free from care. And Jesus says, you do not know the time. You do not know the time or the hour when this will be asked of you. I don't know when I'm going to be next asked to go against my own assumptions, ideas, or challenges, but I do know that if I do nothing else from now until he calls me home, I am going to stay awake. Awake to the reality that I may have been wrong and that I may need to change my mind and that he will still meet me where I'm at. That is sufficient for me and for my faith. And I pray that it is for you as well. Kinfolk, stay awake. Amen? Amen.